Today's episode of the Strength Talk podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media, with our first guest, Kelly Sturette, is brought to you by The Arc from Verve. If you want to improve your posture, The Arc has you covered. Developed by a physical therapist, designed by an engineer, made in the USA, The Arc is going to improve your posture and relieve that neck and back pain once and for all. What is up, guys? Welcome to the brand new Strength Doc podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media, with me, Dr. John Russell. I want to get one thing clear. This is not going to be your average fitness podcast, and I'm sure as hell not your run-of-the-mill strength coach. What's going on, guys? Dr. John Russin here with the first episode of the Strength Doc Podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media. We know how to kick things off here at Strength Doc Podcast because we have New York Times bestselling author, physical therapist, strength coach, movement extraordinaire, Kelly Starrett with us. Kelly is truly one of the shining stars that has popularized the sport we know as CrossFit today. And having opened one of the first 50 CrossFit affiliates in the world, just think about that now. We have over 10,000 CrossFit affiliates. Kelly has seen movement from literally tens of thousands of athletes. And really, it has shaped the way that he coaches and teaches to this day. In this conversation, Kelly and I really dive deep into the sport of CrossFit, what he's seen from the sport over the last 10 years, where he thinks the sport is headed, and also what he does at his gym, San Francisco CrossFit, to reduce the likelihood of injury and also increase the performance of some of the best athletes in the world. Kelly Storette and more in this episode of Strength Doc Podcast. All right, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. And I have to ask, first and foremost, how was that outrigger race in Molokai? Whew, uh, you just opened like with my vulnerable pink spot, you know. Um, what I would say about if, if you don't know what the Molokai race is, it's just this little like 32 mile 50K open ocean channel crossing between the island of Molokai and Oahu. And uh, it's very, very technical. In fact, it was everything I hoped the race would be. Long, grueling. It, it took me six and a half hours. Just off, I, I turned out I was on a boat that was a little bit too small for me. And so I, I, instead of just getting to surf the whole way, I got to grind the whole way. And uh, I did not expect it to be like, really, you have to be an expert boater. And it was amazing. We had beautiful days, so many good people there. And, uh, but I got off and literally was like, I'm doing it again next year on a different boat. (laughs) That's awesome. How was, how was your preparation for that? Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring it up and, and that's actually, I think some of the really interesting parts of it is it had been a few years since I had a big race or event hanging over my head. I mean, I like to compete like the next guy and I challenge myself physically a lot and, but, um, you know, I hadn't had a really huge event, event where if you don't prepare, you can't finish, you know what I mean? That level of event, you know, and cause there's a lot of things that we, I think we all can do where you can, you know, you can show up and play basketball game, bas- pick up basketball with your old friends and, and get by, but you can't, you can't cheat this thing. And what was great was recently I discovered that I'm an actually a, an aerobic responder. My genes actually indicate that, uh, I respond well to aerobic exercise and that I'm not a power athlete. I'm an endurance athlete which is, you know, a little bit confusing when you, you know, weigh 240 and you've been trying to lift weights <laughs> and all your friends are strong and you're not strong. Now, if you're you know? not familiar and, with uh, Kelly, you know, my friends are really, really strong behind and I've been lifting weights for a time and I'm not really, really strong really relative to my friends, the way that you know, we look at mobility and, uh, you know, I don't have a big six step, you know, and, um, so I, I think, 
But it's interesting to kind of really go into this training, the way that we look and, at movement and really and deep dive into the in world of sport and you know, fitness. Long Kelly distance is also work. the owner of San Francisco It, it really taught CrossFit, me a lot. It got me thinking creatively about breathing mechanics and solving breathing related problems. Um, Kelly is also really interested in hydration and nutrition of these levels, and and also fifty highlighted for me again how difficult it is. So let's just take a step back and prepare for a big event like this and still be a dad and a good husband and you and work and career. make sure I don't get too and stiff. Most coaches and, get you know, to do like in a if I, if I and it really shows from his nutrition wise, or I got behind in my hydration, or you know, I didn't sleep well. Boy, I traveled and had to teach. Man, my my training Huge sucked. Thanks goes out to Kelly and I think that really, you know. There's the some party there's some times when we go on day to day as coaches and athletes who are just training. Because I'm not like you know you nothing's emerging. So you know I, I don't have to train for any single upcoming thing. Otherwise, I love to train. I'm training five or six days a week. Huge thanks to Kelly Sturrock for coming on for our first ever episode on Strength Podcast. But we're not just leaving it at that. We have some amazing guests lined up for the next couple weeks. Suddenly, all of the details do matter. Oh yeah, and after hey guys, hearing that the boat was a little bit to too small Starrett, for you and six and a half hours in there, I hope you had a nice Hawaiian podcast. vacation with Juliet and the kids after episode, that. You deserve <laughs> it, man. No, 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 man. We went the to party we went is to just getting started here at Strength uh, Doc Podcast. Uh, I was so dreaming of sushi, and then they had this coconut vodka drink there that I literally was like my my chance, like Morimoto. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kelly Sturrock as much as I did. And then, of course, Juliet and I jumped on the airplane and came back because we had school on Monday and you know. I think we have I think some really amazing guests lined up for the next couple weeks. Idea is, so be sure to stay tuned like to us to on iTunes. Not a every single, single monk, you know, living in a monk-like condition. But how do you go until have next time, guys? A really rich I'm your physical host, life, Dr. John, and still balance it with being a, a working human. Like I've I've missed my boat. I, you know, I had a chance as a young, much younger man to paddle professionally. It was great, but now you know it's it's much more interesting to balance these things out. And keep that in mind that if we the best practices have really be, become to the surface, where we now know really simple, time efficient ways to prepare you to go have these peak experiences physically and come out unharmed, and that is part of the part of the deal. Oh yeah, you know the family life, your social life, everything coming together as one and synergizing. That's one of the toughest things to do, but when you do it, uh, it's almost like your training just exponentiates. It's unbelievable. Yeah, you know, when we say, you know, deadlines focus the mind, and, um, you know, and it really brought up for me again that, you know, that, that adage that we ask all the time, what are you training for? Why are you, tra- what are you doing? Because you can definitely go to the gym and occupy yourself and, you know, and do some five by fives or, you know, work on your kettlebell snatch test, but you, know, you really should set some physical goals for yourself. You know, phys- I'm going to improve one aspect of my physical self. And that could be your blood panel, that could be sleep quality, that could be any aspect of your physical practice. But really trying to set that and then go after it, I think, really does focus the intention of what you're trying to do. And of course, I mean, that's goal setting 101, right? And giving meaning by why we're training. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking about goal training 101, I know there's a big competition coming up in a couple weeks here. We have the CrossFit Games hitting ESPN. I'm excited about it. I'm sure you're excited about it. What are you looking forward to the most out of the games this year? Well, you know, the games has turned into a really interesting, uh, uh, you know, performance human 
function festival. And if you can see the tech that comes to it, the new ideas, the innovations and in equipment and, and manufacturing and like that side of it is really, it's fun. It's fun to go be a spectator and walk around and see what, you know, is this current thinking around some of the training conditioning, you know, I mean that some of the really useful tech that's out there about measuring and training and tracking and the genetics around, um, you know, genetic profile testing. There's just some things like that that are really useful and actionable for the day-to-day athlete. So we have that aside, but then the other aspect of this is that we have, um, you know, what I think is such an extraordinary, uh, x-ray or examination of human function. And that if you don't, if you drop in and don't understand what you're seeing, you can't understand. It's like showing up at a big wave contest and watching people crush these big waves and being terrified that they're not prepared for it. And instead, what you can't see is that they have been surfing for years and years and years and years and training for those peak experiences. What we've seen every year at the games is that we have exceeded our expectations of what's possible physically in terms of strength and metabolic demands in terms of skill sets and and function and what's great about the games is that the because the program varies enough that it really does force people to become generalists like show up and row what is it was it 20k on the you know what i mean like if you don't have a huge aerobic base and you have to row a marathon on the erg like you're gonna die and some of the some of the bet the athlete like you know camille leblanc basnet who won last year did terrible on that partly because she was small you know than some of the other girls and partly because she just wasn't as competent in that domain and what i think is interesting is that whether we like it or not the central tenet of good gpp fitness whether it's spun up to games or not is saying am i keeping an eye on all of the aspects of my physical self? Am I challenging myself with new skills? Am I challenging myself with new sports? Am I constantly learning? And when you force people to do things like learn how to swim, you know, there's a lot of interesting growth that comes up. And, you know, I think traditionally we've seen, for example, that running has been sort of a domain that we've taken for granted a little bit. It's something we did in between lifts, you know, but suddenly when you're forced to deal with brutal trail runs or you're going to have to run on the true form treadmill and you, that means you're going to have to have perfect technique, then what we see is that the skill, because people have focused on, you know, the skill training and they focused on the weightlifting training for so long, some, they're competent and suddenly they're able to turn their, their eye of training back towards some of these other more traditional domains. And what we're seeing is really, really capable athletes. Like it's really exciting to see. I like that you brought up the generalist versus the specialist when it comes to the elite CrossFitters, because you've literally worked with everybody here, every single sport known to man and not just the average people you've worked with world-class athletes from literally every sport. That's so true. What, what do you think sets the elite CrossFitter, you know, the one that's going to be competing in the games, apart from the other phenoms that you've worked with in other sports? Well, I would say there's a couple, I think, hallmarks of, of the best CrossFit athletes. One is that they were all excellent junior athletes who played lots of sports. And one of the, the, the we know... Rich Froning was a quarterback, I think, you know, um, Graham Holmberg quarterback and starting pitcher. You just, you know, you, 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 as a, as an allegory, you see that there is a 
rich history of competition and some kind of aerobic base work that has been done. So what you'll see is that most of the kids who are really successful in the CrossFit have grown up with some kind of hand-eye skill sports and also some kind of aerobic background. So they're used to working because what we're finding is that you can't fake your aerobic package, right? It, you know, there's a good coach who recently said it only takes two weeks to get in shape. And I think that that is, that is just so out there and so not rooted in reality. You know, it takes two weeks to get in shape to play a pickup basketball game. But you know, what, what we're seeing is that it takes decades to, you know, put into the aerobic basket. And for example, the best cyclists right now, they peak at like age 33 to 35 for men. And it takes that long to become that truly aerobically dominant. And don't be wrong. I know that there are mutants among us, right? But if we look at the constituent components that make really good athletes, it's not an accident that a lot of the top girls also happen to be high-level gymnasts, you know, and really competent bodyweight movers that then started to put an aerobic, you know, package on top of that. And so, you know, what we're seeing around the, the generalists is one is that you, these athletes tend to be very, very durable because you know there are some speed wobbles that happen on the way to mastery, and these athletes are able to survive that. And one of the things that I think is really important to witness, and it's hard to see it unless you can you're up close and can witness the transformation, but is that the refinement of skill and technique. And when I say technique, what I'm saying is specifically good biomechanics expressed in any platform. You know that's what really tech, good technique is. You know, it's not, it's not an issue of, well, are you swinging the barbell off your hips? Or, you know, it's like, are your shoulders in a stable position, yes or no? You know, the rest of it is style. And what we've seen is that the best athletes have refined and are becoming more and more competent movers. And there's less silliness in their spine. And why is that? Because they found out that that, you know, breaking in the, in the trunk was the fastest way to dump force and fatigue and not be able to compete again. And so what's happens with the, the sport of CrossFit is that it ultimately it forces the virtuosity that we have to see and hopefully have to take back to our beginners. This is our baseline, not only because we think it's the safest, the best way to move, but it turns out that that's the best way to win at the highest level because it's the most mechanically efficient. Absolutely. And going back to what you said about the development of these top-end CrossFit athletes, they were playing multiple sports as children, probably through high school as well. You know, that kind of goes against our American model of early specialty. Ooh. But I know a lot of research is coming out now and saying gold medal Olympians, uh, professional athletes, these are all a majority of people that played multiple sports up until they were age 14 or so, and even into high school until age 17 when they specialize into the one. Is that, is that something that you think uh, for youth development, people watching the games, thinking that possibly this may be their sport, the sport of fitness, is that something that they would want to do? Well, you know, what's interesting is that you know, when we talk about, um, you know, traditional training, usually what we're talking about is a sport and, and the high rep repetition of the single sport. What's good about a balanced strength conditioning model, right? That's very thorough. And I'll be, I'll be clear. I'm saying that all of the best practices are really starting to look similar there, are, you know, do we squat two times a week or three times a week? That's, that's the variability, right? Do we use dumbbells overhead or barbell, you know, but otherwise people are, best practices of, of, of the best and most elite programs, you know, Arsenal, 
you know, is a, is a team, a club that I get to work with and know those guys and they front squat. You know what I mean? Like these are soccer players front squatting, you know? And, and so it's, you know, what we're seeing is that a lot of the best practices come around. What's good about CrossFit as a base practice, as a physical practice, is that it really doesn't leave many metabolic holes, like none, and it doesn't leave a lot of skill holes in there. But I would let you, you know, so it's, I think it's really sustainable. Like I've been crossing now for like 13 years, right? 14 almost. And, you know, I still am discovering aspects of my fitness and physical self, things that, you know, like Ido Portal has been railing against forever, like strict, you know, handstand, you know, press the handstand. Well, if we go back into the original construct of CrossFit as general physical preparedness so you could do other sports, sometimes what happens in CrossFit is people get so excited about fitness as a sport that they stop playing other sports and they stop using the fitness. And I think my only critique is that people have forgotten that part of the original tenet of CrossFit was to be constantly exposing yourself to new sports. And said, in fact, it says that in fitness in a hundred words or less, constantly learn new skills and sports. And what I think happens initially is that there's a massive learning curve. And when you come into a formalized strength conditioning system, that's asking you to learn pistols and the tenets of gymnastics, Olympic lifting, powerlifting and, and aerobic competency. I mean, there's just, you know, most of us are not prepared like that when we come into a system unless we were, you know, high level Olympic lifters or throwers, you know, or gymnasts. And what I can say is, you know, that we become very enamored of that. And certainly while you're a busy person, that alone can sustain you, but you've got to get back out and apply your fitness and figure out where it goes, which means sign up for 5k, sign up for a half marathon, go jump and do an open ocean swim. I mean, one of my friends is, is, is a guy named Bill Owens, you know, he happens to be the uh, one of the you know the executive um, producers of Sixty Minutes, right? Sixty Minutes Sports. That guy just jumped in and swam a one mile open ocean race, you know, in New York. And my point is that is exactly what we need to be doing more: jump into a weightlifting meet, jump into a powerlifting meet, go learn a new sport, go play, join a soccer team. I just think that people aren't sometimes consummating the idea of physical self because the gym is so gym experience is so satisfying and don't get me wrong Juliet and I love to train we love it but we also love to ride our mountain bikes and stand up paddle and race and and go find out what, why the meaning we give even greater context to the meaning so when you focus on CrossFit as a sport it turns out that there's a lot of sports you have to be good at running swimming biking you're seeing that people are getting a lot really much better at that as a sport but they have specialized just the way any other athlete specializes. And so, you know, their, their total kind of movement richness is, is really gym specific sort of. Yeah. And being exposed to all of those different demographics of fitness in one facility is an unbelievable opportunity for coaches, practitioners, you know, just students of movement to be doing a continuous diagnostic of every single athlete that walks through the door. I know you've made a career on looking at tens of thousands of athlete hours and literally just breaking down these different archetypes. Uh, is that something that you think was given to you that experience directly through CrossFit? Oh yeah. Well, I tell you what, the, I mean, the regular patterning of force, you know, seeing people, you know, perform air squats and overhead squats and what happens when the torso goes upright and then we move fast you just can see, and I'm so grateful that I had some formal physio training at the same time I discovered CrossFit because I, those things grew up as two gigantic trees with the root systems intertwined. 
And it really helped me understand, you know, how we can improve our thinking about sport performance and mechanics because I came from the physio side, right? Like we're seeing a lot less overextension in sport right now, a lot less. They're still happening, but, you know, we're not telling people to cram their pelvis over and lock their back out anymore. Like that's, you know, that's a 12-year-old cue, right? Right. You know, we're just like, oh, lock over. Now hang on those facets. Now arch into the, <laughs> arch into the belt. You know, we're not doing that anymore. And that's, I think, it's become because we, you know, got smarter as we came through it. And I saw that early on. But, you know, um, seeing that at the same time, you know, uh, you know, I, I was grateful to have all of that pattern recognition and then also get to work in so many other sports. I think one of the problem, one of the great things you get to do as a physio, if you're not working with a single population, is you start to see dysfunctions across populations and you start to see the patterns and relationships. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to work with, you know, for example, I think some of the, the guys at the, uh, the World Athletic Center, that's Coach Dan Pfaff and his staff, they're out of the Exos building in Phoenix. And, um, you know, one of the things about those guys, for example, that's so powerful is that because they're working with so many different athletes, as track athletes, throwers, sprinters, hurdlers, jumpers, pole vaulters, they, they are able to extract more data from across more populations. So initially there's more noise, but pretty soon you start to be able to chunk the information and that helps you to leapfrog faster so you can see problems that you couldn't see unless you lived in another sport. Oh yeah. And that experience that you spoke of that, that 13 years of skin in the game, the CrossFit game, you know, you might be one of the only people walking around in the country with that kind of experience with a DPT. So I I like what you have to say about this stuff because you've seen the progression of athletes in CrossFit and you've literally seen it over a decade. And my question is what, what's the biggest change that you've seen with these CrossFitters being bigger, faster, stronger, better metabolic engines than ever before. And how are they getting so much better year after year, you know, coming into the games and doing extraordinary things and breaking PRs? Well, you know, it's interesting around. So one of my, uh, is a good friend. He is an osteopath. He's, he, he's on our MWAT staff. His name is Yami Tikkanen. And, uh, he has been training Annie Torres daughter, you know, programming for her and also programs for a lot of elite, elite CrossFitters. So I would say that Annie is the most successful woman in CrossFit history in terms of her podiums at the regionals and, and, and games. And so if we just take, you know, her coach, I can say he's the most successful CrossFit coach there is, right, in terms of, of consistently putting people into the top. And what I can tell you is that, you know, you cannot willy-nilly your way up into into the games and definitely on the podium. There used to be a time where you could just outwork everyone, you know, and you could you could leverage your mutant self to do that. But that has that ship has sailed, and what you're seeing is real refinement in in programming, real refinement in adaptation to programming. You know, the people are very sophisticated using Omega Wave and, and tracking heart rate variability and, and a lot of other blood testing. And, and like, there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes now at the highest level that I think would shock the person from the outside about how sophisticated everyone is. And also the workloads. I don't think you can appreciate in order. There used to be a time where you could, you know, you could train once a day and maybe go to the games. And then it got to be where you trained, you know, twice a day with the games. And now we're seeing that the top athletes, you know, it is a full-time job 
and they are very sophisticated and working in so many different domains that if they didn't have years of training, no one can skip ahead to being able to have the, the indigenous capacities to win without having a history of being able to work hard. And so what you're seeing is the consummation of literally five years, six years, seven years of really, really high-end training. And that's, that's the, I think that's one of the common denominators that I, I, it's pretty amazing the, the discipline around nutrition, around the sophistication, around compression and adaptation and, and recovery, you know, that because it, you can't Olympic lift and, you know, row and do gymnastics all in the same day and not really make sure that those things are dialed. So out of CrossFit, this elite level, we've really seen our application of best principles on athletes that where no one is working harder than these athletes. Maybe people are working as hard in a single domain. Like it's very hard to be a Tour de France cyclist, but no one is working harder than the top crossfitters. No one. And definitely any progression in any sport, it's multifactorial. Just like you said, there's a lot of different factors that are going to go into setting PRs, doing extraordinary things. But what, what about the preparation that these high-end CrossFitters say going into the games in a couple of weeks? Has their model of training changed from you know, the old-school WOD model that maybe people are using 10 years ago into a more advanced training methodology that may be away from the traditional uh, CrossFit model? Well, you know, I think what you need to say is that what, what is the traditional CrossFit model? And for me, the, the model has, and I, I, I'm not trying to be overly political here, but the model has always been extremely flexible and that, you know, for an average person rolling into the gym, working on a skill or a strength, you know, some mechanics, touching some aerobic conditioning, some anaerobic conditioning, right, with a couplet or triplet is literally the original impetus and model for sustained GPP development over time with the idea that you can also go have a physical life outside of the, of the gym, right? That the ideas were short and fast, work on a skill, work on a strength, you know, have a lift, you know, one of the basic templates is we do a lift and then the, the, the Metcon or the conditioning piece around it are auxiliary movements that support the lift or, you know, it's a, it's a, a monostructural piece and an assistance piece, right? So it allows us to program infinitely. What I can tell you is that what people are not doing is pulling up really, really big, heavy volume workouts and smashing themselves day after day after day. That is not what it looks like at all. What you're seeing is periodization, you know, progressive loading, system, systematic training. And, you know, when I say periodization, what you're seeing is, you know, it's not like they're working in, in big blocks, but you are seeing deload weeks. You are seeing, you know, athletes who are always in a ready state, more a little in the lines of like Louis Simmons. Hey, let's keep you at the 90% range and then press up and down on the gas and we'll just continue to make, make gains in that. You know, because CrossFit does demand one rep max efforts, the training looks a little bit different. People are very, very sophisticated in aspects of their, of their programming. But what you've seen is that really good aerobic coaches, endurance coaches like Brian McKenzie are being sought out to program the other aspects of the, of the fitness now. So, you know, the, what's, what you're not seeing is that the top athletes are just randomly doing a bunch of, you know, wads. That's not what it is. What you're seeing is those athletes are still doing 
lots of couplets and triplets. They're still challenging their ability to maintain high heart rates and do multiple movements in a, in a couple because that is the heart of CrossFit. And you can't get around that and be successful at that and it still works well. But, you know, there may be an A piece, a B piece, a C piece. And then in the afternoon, it's a completely different set or a long piece. So what you're seeing is, again, the model that I think is poorly understood is that, you know, when I have the world's best female cyclist or America's best female cyclist at our gym, she's not smashing Fran, but she is doing couplets and triplets of things she needs to work on. Does that make sense? That absolutely makes sense. The, the model, the model is very flexible and has always been flexible, but like any sports specific training, you see a lot of specialization towards, you know, it's very sophisticated and it's a lot of work. And the mistake as a man who's 41 with the family is to say, I can do that too and smash myself. And what you've seen now is that people are saying, Hey, look, we have different tracks. And at our gym, for example, we have, you know, we have a triathlon specific training group, right? That the volumes are mitigated or attenuated so that people can still do their other triathlon stuff. You know, but based on CrossFit principles, we have a powerlifting group, same concept, Olympic lifting, right? We have, we do gymnastics training, right? And so what you see is that, you know, Hey, we have actually three tiers of program. We have our GPP. This is what you and I need to continue to be able to physically do the things we want to do to be in a ready state where that I can go up, pick up and do a race then we have a, a CrossFit sport class, which is people who want to jump into local competitions and, and take their CrossFit as a sport to a second level. And then we have our Elite Gains package, which is based on Yami's, you know, Yami's programming called the Training Plan, which is very sophisticated and very, very difficult. Twice a day training. Yeah, and, and you said you know the part A, part P, part C of the different training days, and then doing something totally different in the afternoons on the two-a-days. Uh, is it safe to say that you know, the sum of all the parts of the training is actually greater than the whole as compared to something like a wad going into competition or even into having longevity in a CrossFit career? Well, you know, I, what's interesting is I think we have seen a lot of longevity in the career and every once in a while something freakish happens, but I would say that that's, you know, if we look at the actual numbers of people participating, it's very high and the, the freak outlier tweak pieces are very low, right? And, and I, I have to be honest that I sometimes can't correlate those to, you know, a CrossFit experience that just happened during a strength conditioning movement, right? You know, and so, um, to your point, I think it's important that, that one of the ways of looking at CrossFit is not, did I smash myself for 12 minutes today? Did I smash myself for 10 minutes today? But what, one of the things that's indigenous to the programming that people don't understand is that costly varied movement means that we are going from archetype to archetype a lot. That it's not just a front rack to overhead position or an overhead to front rack position like a pull-up or a press. We're also going from an internally rotated snatch position to overhead, right? Where we're turning that position. We're going from a press shape to overhead. And so what really good programming does is it forces us to move consistently and competently in multiple motor patterns. And so that we're seeing that we're fluent in lots of different motor skills. And that seems confusing, but if you're, all you're doing is kettlebell snatching and bar snatching, then those are similar movements, right? But what ends up happening is that very thorough programming is, is looking at the positions that the body's in and saying, 
are we spending time in this range? Yeah, and and going back to what you said about uh, you know the freak injuries happening in sport, this is nothing new. It's been happening for thousands of years. It's been happening for as long as people have been competing, and you know freak things that happen on the main stage, like the Julie Fouché injury this year. People oh, want to point fingers. You know, oh, that's, Co- that's Kobe fingers. Bryant tearing his Achilles. That's exactly. You know, nobody was too harsh on Kobe when that happened. You know, it was just part of the NBA game. But as soon as it happens on a box, you know, people are going to be pointing fingers. So well, it's important for people to realize that it's part of sport and it's no more uh, likely to happen in any sport than another. Well, that's right. In fact, you know, the research has shown that, you know, crossfitting is as, you know, is as safe as any other sport and, and much safer than, you know, sports like running. I have to be totally honest. I mean, the, the key here is a fundamental conversation about, you know, looking back and saying, what are the things that we could control and what are the mistakes that we made? Because I, there, as you know, as a physio, and I know that I believe that 98% of the problems we see orthopedically are preventable in nature. You know, that we just, you, you can't be stiff and have inflamed tissue and you not have full range of motion and be sleep deprived and, you know, and then expect your tissues to hold together. Like that just doesn't work. You know, you can't have a collapsed foot when you jump up and down off something every single time and have that Achilles pull obliquely off access. If you don't have full dorsiflexion and your naviculars drop, like I guarantee you over time, that's going to cause an Achilles problem. Right. And what I think sometimes people miss, miss is that sport is a real sport is a chance to test our our abilities of under from our training and our skills right that's what sport is and we we redline there and we should be able to then go back and figure out where the holes and deficiencies were right and but training is a chance to uh, to run the diagnostics all the way down and what we've moved beyond is are we just getting stronger are we just getting faster? That is not what modern training is looking at anymore. Really good training is also saying when you fatigue, this is your default. We fix it when, you know, it's a moving target, your mechanics. All you have to do is be around some NFLers in like the 15th week. And I guarantee you, they look very different than they did at camp, you know? And why? Because I know that to be true. And that means that we, the training is also, yes, we get stronger. Also, yes, we get more powerful. But what we're also seeing is that that's the place to winnow down the problems. That's the place where we scrimmage and drill and scrimmage and drill and scrimmage and drill so that when we test it, you know, like I work with some high-level rugby teams, like really good rugby teams. And in the scrum, I see guys rounding their backs and slamming into other dudes. And I'm like, well, that's not the place to address that. That is a skill that's got to be taught somewhere else. But I can see that, and I'm probably going to see similar rounding on deadlifting and pulling, right? And I also think, hey, that guy's missing some hip range of motion. So I should be able to see everything in the gym that gets expressed out there. There shouldn't be any surprises, if that's what I'm saying. Okay. You know, the most intriguing thing for the CrossFit model or lack of model, like you say, for me as a physical therapist is the ability to perform under heavy fatigue. So, you know, PT school 101, we're going to do a one rep. We're going to see how they move, biomechanics. We're going to try to break down every joint. But in all actuality, people need to be performing under fatigue you know, in sport and daily lives. And that's been a really cool challenge for me as a practitioner, as I know that you've done, is seeing people, testing people, what their 
mechanism is when they default a movement pattern. Well, that's, that's right. You know, what, what I can say is if we keep us in the, in the vein of the CrossFit, let's use Rich Froning, who is going team this year, which is very exciting. But when Rich gets tired, his mechanics become better. He stops muscling it. He trusts his mechanics. And at the course of four or five days, one of the reasons, you know, everyone is really good in the first couple days and the first couple workouts because everyone is very fit. And the differences metabolically between these guys and girls are it's pinche. But one of the reasons that the games is so long is that you, it rewards efficiency and mechanical competency. And what you'll see is that the athletes who are really efficient have more energy on the last day, have more energy in the last, you know, the last training sessions or the last workouts. That's no different than my soldiers carrying a heavy, heavy pack 20 miles and then being expected to operate after carrying a pack 20 miles or playing in a uh, ultimate frisbee tournament and playing four games in two days, right? Like that's the thing. You know, I work in a very fancy sports orthopedic clinic where we, one of the things we specialize in was skiing inju- injuries. And I can't tell you how many people came in who got injured when they were a little bit tired at the end of the day. Oh yeah, the light was flat. I was like, the light wasn't flat. <laughs> you were weak and out of shape. Like, you know, like that's what happened. And I think it's crucial to understand that we can always always continue to push as hard as we want to push because we're human beings and we can get a task done. Like no matter what, I was going to finish that race. Even if my back was rounding, even if my shoulders were hurting, I'm finishing the race that I set up. I'm a big boy. I'm doing it right. That, that's, that was my, my commitment, but we have to take the ego out of that when we train. And that doesn't mean we're not going to see movement variability, right? When I see you you know, at the edge of your technique or your technique starts to falter, we're either done or we rest or we adjust the load, but we get out of the mindset that we'll just do more work because that's what I'm supposed to do. So one of the, one of the things that my, one of my friends says, Brian McKenzie of CrossFit Endurance and Athlete Cell is that he programs pieces for me. For example, he did all my programming for this race. And a lot of it was based on how much volume I could take. And when my, my tech, when my wattage started to drop and my performance started to flag, I was done. And so what ends up happening is that there is some sliding variability, but that idea of we work until we lose quality, that's the key concept. There are definitely times where we put up something that is a gut check because that is the equivalent of a sport experience for someone training at our gym who's not engaged in sport, right? Like on you know Memorial Day, we always do Murph, you know, which is starts with a mile run and then you get 100 pull-ups, 100 push-ups, you know what I mean? There's a whole lot of work in there and that's literally about grinding, but it's also not about grinding in a bad position or hurting yourself, but it's a chance to, boy, they're really simple body weight movements. We're going to just, you know, this is a, this is a, a courageous gut check. This is working at the limits, but what, what's happened is now the ship has sailed and we are seeing people now much smarter, realizing that everyone can work hard. In fact, I think that, you know, the average sort of conditioning state of the of the athletic world is much higher now than it was 10 years ago i think people are much fitter you know their skills they can swing a kettlebell they can run i mean we're just seeing that i think general comp you know competency is much higher in in athletes and 
But we're also now starting to see where people are saying, hey, we're going to use intensity to test the robustness of your position. And that has been a misconcept because why we all have egos and we like to lift heavy weights and we like to win. Right. It's almost like the the runner's mindset. The goal is to finish, not the goal is to have quality reps on every single gait cycle. The same thing can be said in fitness. Well, boy, you just nailed it. And I would say that the runners are probably the epitome of this old school notion that you run till you break and you back off and you run till you break. And, um, you know, what's interesting, if you talk to the best runners, they only talk about refining their technique so that they look at the end of the race like they did at the beginning of the race. Yeah, and going back to the CrossFit Games, uh, I think it's a misconception that the layperson who is not familiar with CrossFit, they turn on ESPN you know, every Tuesday night or whatever it is for a couple weeks straight. And they don't realize this stuff happens on a three-day period. You know, all of these events are happening over a weekend. And you have to own your positions. You have to own your endurance. And you really have to battle that fatigue to maintain your position. And that's really something that I think is lost to the general public when they air on ESPN. Well, you know, it's like the, you know, the Women's World Cup was on and, and uh, in soccer, go ahead and say. And it's... <laughs> difficult to understand unless you play the sport. I appreciate the sport, but there is so much skill and strategy that I am unaware of because I do not play elite level national soccer. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think a good example of this is, you know, one of our good friends is George St. Pierre, right? He's a buddy and technically just so excellent technically and spends so much time you know, developing those skills. And then you don't get to see any of that on, in the ring. You, know, you just see, you see a few things. And I, I think what's amazing is it's really difficult for people to appreciate the sophistication and the level of training that goes on. And, and on this, this is, this is not a new phenomenon. One of my friends was at the Olympics in kayaking and there was an Olympic lifter there he was talking to. And the guy's like, Oh, what sport are you here for? You know? And the guy's like whitewater slalom. And he's like, Oh, I guess you have to train for a little bit for that. And literally, you know, here's the guy who was like world cup champion has been paddling since he was eight, like technically one of the best paddlers in the history of the world. So excellent in a very, very difficult medium. And this Olympic lifter just had no appreciation for it because you know, he, that guy was trained two or three times a day, lifting heavy weights, you know? Yeah. And, you know, moving back to the running, uh, not to harp on the runners, but running is definitely something that you've taken on in the past year or so with your book, Ready to Run. You know, huge fan of that book, by the way. Uh, Runners, non-runners alike, they can all get about 12 pillars that you need to do to maintain a longevity of your career in running. So if I were to pose a question, if you were ready to CrossFit, what would be a few top pillars that would ensure safety, longevity, and performance? Well, you know, the things that we have been saying from the beginning, that it's first, it's consistency and mechanics, then intensity. Because we all, I did this too. I got, we got so excited about working hard. It was amazing, right? Woohoo, we're just redlining. This is crazy. I've never done this. And, you know, the, uh, when I started this, it was very different landscape, you know, and uh, we, I think we were protected a little bit because we all sucked so much. You know, um, the first time I ever did this benchmark workout called Fight Gone Bad, which is just a simple conditioning test, three five minute rounds. It's like doing a five minute interval on a bike, which is a very common interval. This is all it is. You know, it's like a five minute interval, then you rest and you do it again. And uh, 
but it's an interval done with other pieces. And, you know, out of 110 people who did it in this big room, you know, I think one person broke 300 and I was like the top 10 with a score of like 288. And if you know anything about this workout, that is terrible. In fact, we expect JV, you know, 14 year old girls to hit 300, you know, like that's where we are now. And, and like, you know, I mean like the, 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 the generalness has changed. So what happens is initially when you come in, you don't have an organizing schema to figure out what it is we're doing, right? It looks like, Oh God, now I'm memorizing the front squat and now I'm memorizing the back squat and now I'm, and there's not a, a constant theme through it. And as soon as you understand some of the central tenets of what we're trying to do, which are part of our manifesto of every good training system. You know, we say CrossFit is a core strength and conditioning system, which means we prioritize spinal stability and midline stabilization first. Boy, that goes along with Stuart McGill. That goes along with what Greg Cook says. That goes along with every other sport. We work in a wave of contraction from trunk to periphery, from core to sleeve. That is the definition of functional movement, right? So when we... When you start saying that and say, hey, look, we need to make sure that you have this braced, organized spine. And then, by the way, all we're going to do is start challenging the robustness of that spine with these other positions. What do I mean? Well, keep that spine and run. Keep that spine and do a push-up. Keep that spine and do a pull-up. No, keep that spine in front squat. Keep that spine in overhead squat. And what you're suddenly seeing is you're like, oh, I'm using these engines to challenge the robustness of my spinal position. And then I use metabolic conditioning or load or speed or intensity somehow to challenge the, the mechanics and efficiency of, of the shoulder and the hip. And suddenly it, it, you can see sort of the source code. You become a master builder for lack of a better word in the Legoland. And, and suddenly, you know, all we're doing is, you know, it's a very simple way to challenge the integrity of your person. It's not just about working harder or meeting some goal, but you know, and I think if we, if you give people that, that construct that this is what your spine is supposed to do, and then let's challenge that with all of this variability, suddenly you can really get to the heart of the matter fast. And it's not always braced. And by the way, you need to learn how to be in globally extended position and a globally flexed position. Why? Because you're going to swim and you're going to block a ball at the volleyball net and you need to know how those positions, you might someday do a forward somersault, right? Those are all the competency shapes that you need to do. And so what we, suddenly if, you know, one of the things we did in Supple Leopard was say, here are the root positions and root mechanics of the spine, the shoulder, and the hip. And then what allows you to do is suddenly be training agnostic so that you can jump into a yoga class and make sense of it. You can do kettlebell work with Pavel and you understand what they're trying to do and how thorough their programming is. Does that make sense? Suddenly Pilates cracks open. You're like, oh, Joseph Pilates wasn't just wasting everyone's time. He was doing the same thing that we're doing, but we're doing it in a modern context of strength and conditioning. So once that would be the ready to cross it, understand these things, and then everything else becomes knowable. Yeah, and in 2.0, Supple Leopard 2.0, the classification system that you use, I mean, that could possibly ready to CrossFit. You know, just put a different title on it and it could be used Or, or, or how about this? Ready to yoga. <laughs> ready, ready to swim, ready to powerlift. I mean, it really right. is, you know, the principles remain the same. Look, your, your hip width, 
you know, your ideal length of your femur, the squat position, how deep you're going. You know, people like to pull out this picture where I'm really squatting wide, but I'm like, that was the limit. So if you said, Kelly, you just have to get your hip crease below your knee, that's where my feet go for me to squat all the way down, just hip crease below the knee, right? If I have to go all the way down and bring my stance in, if I'm, you know, if I'm doing a pistol, it looks very different, but the principles remain the same. And once people understand the principles, suddenly also that they can connect the dots between why we're doing certain positions, you know, why do I have my rowers bench press, right? It's a pulling sport. It's not a pushing sport. It's not to balance out the overdeveloped back muscles. It's because learning how to create a stable shoulder at the pull, at the start of the, of the pull is the same position. That's the start of the bench press. You know, that can I create, break the bar and spread the bar? It turns out when I teach that to my athletes, they also know what the stable shoulder is, you know, during those pulling motions of rowing. And, and look, coaches have been on this for a long time. I mean, I, there was some old strength school strength conditioning coach I knew who would say, I like the bench press. It ties the arms to the body. <laughs> and I was like, I'm, I'm not even sure what that means, coach, but uh, I'll take your word for it. But what it meant was he knew that guys who could bench press well connected pushing and pulling well to the trunk, right? Because they, in order to bench press well, you have to create stable shoulders. Yeah, and the, the key point is good movement is good movement. Stable joint positions are stable joint positions. Uh, you know, you use the word torque a lot when you do your joint positioning. I've gone out and wrote a couple articles about the synergistic spiral effect of lower and upper extremities. Same totally. exact thing. We're talking totally. about that centrated position where we can yes. perform and do anything from that position. And, and carries that out to more vulnerable positions, right? Like that's one of the reasons we, you have to have full range of motion in this centrated position because that's not where life is. You know, go ahead and tackle someone or lay out and catch a ball and you're going to see that you know, your shoulder isn't in that packed bench pressing position. But being able to be stable out there in all of those ranges is crucial. And that's why all we're asking people to do is get back to a baseline range of motion. Like I'm not even saying you should be able to do X physically. I'm saying you should be able to get into these positions so that you can do whatever you want to do. Right. And if we just cleared that off the table, then we could have a conversation in earnest. But you know, if the only way you can squat is to turn your feet out, well, I'm going to have a problem when you jump and land, when you jump up on a box, when you change direction, like that's going to be a problem for me, right? So we need to make sure that we're not just getting blinded by the fact that we should just be squatting more for the sake of squatting. We should be doing these other things because yeah. they, because they reinforce good mechanics and good mechanics is practice that defaults, which I will default into when I need to be a, be a human being working in the world. Yeah, and just as a reader and a consumer of the original Supple Leopard, you know, everyone loved the mobility work. They loved the smashing. I really appreciated the positioning aspect of the book, so kind of the first half. And I thought that was the groundbreaking thing where you actually made uh, a usable way where we can try to master positions before we look at anything else mobility stability wise uh you know that was groundbreaking for me when when you came well, out with that because you really just put a language to what every single coach wanted to do with their athletes well i appreciate that and you know and it, it it's confusing for people you know there are movement paradigms and, and reparation paradigms out there that think everything needs to be perfect before we begin to work and 
And I don't think that that is the way the world operates. I think that's a little bit naive. And all you have to do is go work with soldiers or work with a professional team to know that we're going to continue to work and train and we have to get better simultaneously. So what that means is not everyone squats hip crease below the knee to start. Not everyone has their feet very, very straight when they start. But we don't maroon people there. We continue to progress people. And the most important thing is to start and then you can then start to refine your positions as you go along. But one of the reasons we ended up with such emphasis on the mechanics is that the reason people's calves are always tight is because they move like crap and the calf gets tight because of it or that you get that tendinopathy because you're jumping and landing like a duck, right, and running like a duck. And that's why your peroneals are lit up and that's why you have that stress fracture and that's why you have bunion on your feet and that's why you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we found is that when we, we force people into understanding what the, the movement looks like and the principles behind the movement, we immediately saw a decreased need to mobilize because we weren't reinforcing patterns with stiffness, right? And, and that, was, that was a huge help. And also, the principles that we're using to move are the principles we use to solve mobilization-related issues. So we're always mobilizing towards safety. We're always putting the joint into a better position and we're, and we're always moving there. And that's one of the reasons we don't have people, you know, in our schema, people don't mobilize and then dislocate because all we're doing is mobilizing to safer, more mechanically stable positions. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned, uh, you know, functional movement a couple times. And I spoke to both of our friends, Greg Cook, a couple weeks ago. And we really talked about the FMS, uh, just using any type of systemic model of uh, client or athlete intake into a CrossFit style program. I'm, I'm curious, what does the intake look like at San Francisco CrossFit for a person that comes in first time, lay person wanting to become an athlete and more so a CrossFitter? Well, we hand them a bar and we make them snatch. No, that's not. Uh, <laughs> what we do is, you know, we start with you know, our central tenet of the spine, this is your basic spine mechanic, right? Can you achieve that straight up and down standing? Because that's going to be the start position for our deadlift. And then we teach or our squat or our starting or press. And then we tend to teach all our category one movements, movements that have a star, strong start position and a stable bottom position. And then we remove the speed. So it looks like air squat, front squat, overhead squat, right? All I did was change the torso uprightness, but all we're, all we're saying to people is, hey, look, we can be into a very stable position and we can squat down or move into another stable position, deadlift, push-up, strict pull-up. And so once we give people uh, uh, this central idea, then we teach them what the start and finish positions and some of the, the, the basics. And that, that's three hours of working with a coach in a one-on-one -on -one situation before you can come in, or it's six hours of working in a small group before you're able to come in. And then once you come in, it's still a process, you know? And sometimes people feel like, you know, they're like, hey, I don't feel like, you know, I had to go so light today and get a good workout. I'm like, let me introduce you to the erg. Let me introduce you to the spin bike. You know, like <laughs> just save a little, just save five minutes for me afterwards and let me know if you still don't feel like you got a good workout. So <laughs> the, the issue is, and for us, we haven't used correlates or we haven't used devices and tools to measure what we're doing. We get started with the basics. So for example, we teach... The, our basic squat and the programming for our beginners in our, in our intro is very simple, right? 
Okay, you've got a squat. Now hold this medicine ball at your chest. Good. Elbows in. Does what? That's a front rack position, right? That's like me carrying a kettlebell elbows in. Head is a neutral. Squat down. People got that. I'm like, great. Now just throw this ball at the target and catch it again. And let me see what happens. And all of a sudden, people get struck with the ugly squat stick in the air, right? Feet turn out, knees in, round back. And I'm like, okay. All we did there was challenge that position with a little speed. And what happened? And suddenly people were like, oh, I get it. And so what we do is, again, we start with really basic shapes and positions. We remove the speed. And then we start with that conversation there. And that's a place where we start to be able to layer in problems. And so our athletes start to develop a sense for things they can and cannot do. The number of people who can come in and get into the bottom position of a pistol is very low. And so a lot of our beginning training is showing people how to scale. Here's how we pull a band on so we can do strict pull-ups with the band. Here's how we scale a bottom position of a pistol, right? You don't have the range of motion. So every time you deadlift, we're going to use some, some of these platforms or, or plates or we're going to bring you up off the ground. And people suddenly start to develop a language of working strength conditioning that then we continue to refine as they stay with us for years. That makes a lot of sense because as soon as you get people moving, you get them moving under load, you increase the speed of the movement, you see a lot that's going to be diagnostically friendly for the coach and for the oh, practitioner. Man. It's everything. You can, you can see everything instantaneously. So say uh, one of your clients comes in first time, they make it through your initial uh, you know, one-on-ones, semi-privates, whatnot, and they have some glaring issues, some glaring dysfunctions. You know, you're known as the pioneer of mainstream fitness self-sufficiency. So how do you program in uh, the tools that you talk about in your books and in your practice in mobilitywad.com into their programming while they're in the facility with you? Well, this, you know, this ends up, the, the problem is that people don't come in with one restriction, they come in with 10. Right, and their tissues are poorly prepared for this. Their quads are stiff. Their ankles don't work. They they can't they can't spread the hips in the bottom position of the deadlift. They don't they, they don't know how to create stability off of the hamstring. They don't, they don't have to do any of that. And so, what we do is we focus on the mechanics du jour. What are we doing today? We're going to refine that mechanics. So if you come into our class, oftentimes we will drop in a few mobilizations before we begin. Why? Because we know that our athletes can't even put their arms over their head. If we're going overhead today. Right? We need to make sure that we've optimized their available ranges. But also, afterwards, we teach the, some of the tenets of mobilizing. You know, we have a recovery class. You know, we, do, we do teach soft tissue work. We do this. And it's part of our culture of the gym of saying training is not limited to just strength and conditioning. Training is also about being able to do these things. This is also of what it means to eat right, to sleep. You have to be able to work on refining these positions. And so that ends up just being programmed in for the day. So if we're working on you know, the front squat, we're going to work on your front rack as the mobilization. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that, that, just, that really simplifies the programming because you know, that cleaning up your shoulder mechanics is going to help downstream. It's going to help for something else. It's going to help the bottom of your handstand push-up. It's going to help for your front rack and pressing. Right? And we'll get the rest of it tomorrow. And we'll get the rest of it tomorrow. And we'll get the rest of it tomorrow. And pretty soon, we've developed a practice. It's that same tenet that we've been teaching forever. Mechanics, consistency, intensity. No days off, right? No days off. No days off. But you know, you've, got to, you've got to be able to check your ego. A lot of people, I mean, I don't think people realize how bad they suck. They can work hard, but they suck. And once we take the suck break off, man, then they really be able to work hard. And that's what's exciting. You know, we don't couch this in terms of injury prevention. We couch this in terms of performance. 
here's where you could go faster. Here's where you're leaving performance on the table. And people are like, Oh, I get it. And that's how we, that's how we get the, the hook set. Now you've seen so many people move in your career. If you were to put a general statement out there of two spots that people really needed to work on, and we're just going to break this down to our Western culture right now, you know, two mobilizations or regions that really they need to get at, what would you say they, those were? Well, I, th- I, th- I think they're all important. You know, I, I think a good training, you know, you're, if you are neglect, you know, let's say I, I don't have great internal rotation of my shoulder, right? Well, I don't snatch, so that's fine. But, you know, your shoulder's coming somewhere and going somewhere. So you, you, you're not normal and all your movement is going to be compromised unless you have normal function at the joint in all the ranges and aspects of the joint. That's important to understand, right? And that, so, so what if I'm missing a little hip extension? Well, it turns out if you run, then that hip extension is going to impact your initial contact on every single stride you do. So you need to obsess about it. What I can tell you is that people don't have a schema for starting. So the thing that I would change is say, Hey, look, you need to spend 10 or 15 minutes a day working on the quality of your soft tissues. If we got people invest in that, even just rolling around on a, on a lacrosse ball or doing some sustained, you know, sustained soft tissue work, that would be a revolution in, in, in the system. And also, you know, I would say, honestly, people need to sleep more and also comma, they need a more non-exercise activity. You can't smash yourself at the gym and then go sit at a desk all day long and not expect to be messed up. You need to walk more and be more active. Yeah, and the activity away from the gym is huge. Or even your self-sufficient practice of how you're going to keep your body up away from the gym is also hugely important. All right, Kelly, we're going to leave you with one more question here. If you were king of CrossFit for a day, what would you do? Uh the silence is where would I start with that? So here's what I would do. I would use an analogy that I probably should have done. And I see this once in a while. What would you tell yourself 20 years ago? Right. And what I would tell myself is chill out. Like people really do, you know, I work in this, this concept of unconditional positive regard. That is how we coach and teach. We can be very, very, very harsh, but in that language of this is, you know, we're committed to you helping with you with your process. And what I can say unequivocally is underneath all that is that I don't meet coaches and athletes who don't care very often. Every coach I've met is very obsessed with refining their coaching, refining their technique. And I'll be honest, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, it was a lot simpler. It was a lot more simple. We just, we weren't as sophisticated. And now as a young coach coming in, you know, there's no substitution for lots and lots and lots of repetition actually coaching. But I would say just be patient. You know, there, there was a lot of, you know, guns pointed across it early on. But, you know, it was, it, it, it's because it was developing. And, of course, any system as it matures refines and refines. And all you have to do is watch the refinement of the athletes and the coaching and the technique and the nutrition. And, you know, my, my king of CrossFit would be to go write a letter and to say, be patient with the process. You know, the process works all the time. You just have to let it work. And that's a good big takeaway is the process, trust in the process and really put your time in and getting experience with it, whether you're an athlete, coach, practitioner, whoever. All right, Kelly, where can listeners find more out about you and your practice? We are at MobilityWad on uh, Twitter and Instagram. 
Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, mobilitywad.com is our home base where we have tons and tons of content. We teach courses about this. We, we publish, we write, you know, our idea is we think that the modern coach athlete dyad is one of the most important aspects of human self-actualization and function and health going on today. And this is where we're seeing some of the best thinking and best practices pop up around the planet. It's, it's in the coach. It's amazing. That's great, Kelly. I, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm sure the listeners highly appreciate everything you had to say, really dropping knowledge bombs on everybody. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, man. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kelly Surratt as much as I did. And the party is just getting started here at Strength Talk Podcast. We have some amazing guests lined up for the next couple weeks, so be sure to stay tuned to us on iTunes every single week. Until next time, guys. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell.